history nerds and historians. My name is Christina, and this is After History. This is where we talk about a little tidbit from history that is super fucked up. Um, uh, so apologies. <laughs> I was definitely intending on getting this episode out last week and making it like a second episode of the week bonus episode kind of thing after Jane Seymour, but I had a lot of like personal things that happened and some like mental health issues uh, and some struggles. So I didn't. <laughs> Sorry if you were expecting it, but it didn't happen. Um, but I am here now. And today is the fourth installment of the Tudor series. We've talked about Catherine of Aragon. We've talked about Anne Boleyn. We've talked about Jane Seymour. And today we're on the fourth wife of Henry VIII, which is like probably the most bizarre one (laughs) like I still kind of have a hard time believing that the story is true because it is just so absurd so yeah we're gonna talk about Anna Cleves today we're also gonna talk a little bit about Thomas Cromwell and things that happened with him it's a doozy um trigger warning I believe and this one is just going to be talks of execution of previous wives and all of that jazz um, and, and also talk of divorce. Uh, this one's not as bad as some of the other ones. Like I said, it's just very absurd, uh, in a way. So I'm not gonna dilly dally anymore. Sit back, relax and practice your, oh good God, what the fuck faces. the death of the quote love of his life Jane Seymour Henry went into mourning Hall's Chronicle wrote that the death of Jane was devastating and none in the realm was it more heavier taken than by the king's majesty himself whose death caused the king immediately to remove into Westminster where he mourned and held himself close and secret a great while He kept his foolish company and he spent about two years without a wife and seemingly like not really actively looking for one, even though his counselors definitely were. There were a large number of eligible bachelorettes with notable families. These included Margaretha Brederode, who was 14 to Henry's 46-ish at this point. Um, Henry apparently really liked Marie de Guise, who was betrothed to his nephew, James V of Scotland. So she was unavailable, but apparently it didn't stop him from pretty much being like, I can give you things that he never could. And I don't see a ring on your finger yet. But she ended up marrying James V. So she was now off the table. Two of Marie's sisters were also on the table who were supposedly as beautiful as her. Christina of Denmark was a big contender. She was the widow Duchess of Milan, whom she married when she was 13. And the Duke of Milan was about 38. Super, super fun. Um, she was also the niece of Charles V, so that, if they would have gotten married, might have fostered good relationships with Spain, and, um, that, that dude who wasn't super happy about her and retreated his Aunt Catherine, you know, but she did not want to marry 
Henry. She didn't think that he would be good company because she felt that her great aunt, Catherine of Aragon, had been poisoned. And then that next wife, Anne Boleyn, had been innocently put to death. And then Jane had died for lack of keeping in her child's bed. I'm not sure what she meant by that, but that is the quote that she gave as to why she did not want to marry Henry VIII. Henry, though, was still very interested in her, even though she was not having it. But we all know, like, (laughs) what a woman wants doesn't matter as much as what a man wants, especially if that man is King Henry VIII. But they did need approval from the Pope because she was related to his first wife. And seeing as the relationship between Henry and the Pope was not that great, especially after he was excommunicated in December 1538, it did not look very probable for him. Now, of course, Henry didn't follow the Pope anymore, but Christina of Milan did. So, uh, Christina of Denmark, sorry. (laughs) Widow Duchess of Milan. So, all of these potential wives would create political unions that would be beneficial to England, But with every single one of them, it seemed like Henry was just more concerned with how they looked. And he would send people to paint their portraits and then report back of how they looked. So it would be like, your majesty, this woman will foster good relationships with Spain. Um, And he'd be like, awesome. Is she hot, though? And then they'd be like, oh, your majesty, this woman would create a political alliance with France, who has long been our enemy. Uh, And then Henry was like, fantastic, but is she cute? Sir Francis Bryan, who was an English ambassador in France, suggested that instead of sending people like Hans Holbein to paint portraits and then wait for them to come back with the risk that they might not be accurate, instead they should just like arrange a meeting in Calais, which was an English port in France. And then Henry VIII could just see everyone. Um, It's like with Cinderella when he has the ball, except Henry is a lot less charming than that prince. But Francis I of France refused to allow that. He didn't like the idea of like marching all these women out and parading them in front of Henry. He even kind of ridiculed Henry and was like, are you planning on fucking them as well while you're here? So um, yeah, Henry gave up on that idea. Politically, at this time, France and Spain had signed the Treaty of Toledo in January 1539. This stated that the two countries wouldn't sign any further alliances with Spain. And then they ended their war later on that year with the Treaty of Nice. So there was like peace between the two at the time. It was a fragile peace, but it was still a peace. And Thomas Cromwell interpreted these treaties as something that we should be worried about. That, that perhaps France and Spain could be creating an alliance, meaning that these two Catholic countries would team up against England. So he was looking into an ally that was like also Protestant or at least like open-minded to Protestants. And the best place to look was Germany. So John Hutton, who was the ambassador to the Dowager Queen of Hungary, was actually the first one who suggested Anne as a potential wife on December 4th, 1537. But she was just at the end of like a good size list of women that included a lot of women I just mentioned. When he mentioned her, it just said the Duke of Cleves has a daughter, but there is no great praise either of her personage or her beauty. Now, her sister Sibylla was supposedly very beautiful. So there were good genes there. But that's definitely not the last time that Anne of Cleves is, like, regarded as unattractive. In fact, a lot of people will call her the ugly wife of Henry VIII. But I think that's mostly because of the things that Henry said. The portraits of her are not ugly. 
the descriptions of her are not ugly. In fact, it said that when she became a big contender and Henry sent Hans Holbein to paint her portrait, he was delighted with what he saw and felt like like she was the that young and pretty wife that he deserved as king of England. Because, you know, at this point, Henry VIII was a real catch, ladies. He was in his mid-40s when 40 was considered relatively old. Um, up until this previous decade or so, he was very athletic. Um, he was very good looking. He was very charming. Um, this this changed. At this point in 1539, he was 48 years old. He was fat. He had a bad temper and he had open sores and ulcers on his legs that would fester and smell. So he had injured his foot playing tennis in 1527, which led to some issues on and off. And then later that year, he began complaining of a sore leg. And then that was the first recorded ulcer he had. And then they just like continued to get worse. They got exponentially worse after he fell in 1536 in that jousting accident that like may or may not have caused Anne Boleyn's miscarriage. So now it's the late 1530s. And they're at the point now where like these ulcers just are not healing on him. And Henry VIII actually was like very into medicine. He liked coming up with some of his own remedies for these sores because normal remedies weren't working for him at this point. So one of the remedies that he came up with was something called the King's Old Gray Plaster, which consisted of ingredients like roots and buds of various plants, stoneless raisins, linseed, vinegar, rose water, ivory flakes, powdered pearls, earthworms, red lead, which was extremely poisonous, and fat from chicken and calves legs. Just delicious. Sores got so bad. I don't know why. Uh, This sounds like a great healing remedy with poisonous lead and chicken fat. Um, That just sounds like a great remedy. And I don't know why they're not working in healing his sores, but (laughs) it got so bad um, that he started gaining an incredible amount of weight because he couldn't participate in these sports that he's participated in. He was very athletic. Like I said, he and he loved eating copious amounts of meat and pastries and drinking a lot of wine. But when he was athletic, it was like kind of counterbalance these things Like he was regarded as being like a big stocky guy, um, kind of like I imagine him kind of like a linebacker sort of in his early days where he's just like very buff, very big, but he, you know, eats a lot of carbs and all of that, but then works it off and it's beneficial for him. But once he had too many ulcers and he couldn't be athletic anymore, he just gained more and more weight. And it was believed that he was about 400 pounds at his death a few years after this whole incident happened. But regardless of how he looked, (laughs) very concerned with how his wives looked, very concerned with everything that was going on with them. And Anne was still an option that was on the table. And Thomas Cromwell was really, really pushing for it. But Henry was just like, yeah, but is she hot though? (laughs) In March of 1539, there was a letter that described her and it said, as well for the face as for the whole body, above all other ladies, excellent. She as far excelleth the Duchess of Saxony as the golden sun excelleth the silver moon. Every man praiseth the good virtues and honesty with shamefacedness, which plainly appeareth in the gravity of her countenance. Then later that year in August, Cromwell wrote to Henry that she was beautiful in face and body. And this is when Henry sent Hans Holbein and was happy with what he saw. And then they proceeded with the marriage negotiations. 
So let's talk about Henry's betrothed. So her name in German was actually Anna von Julich Cleveberg. She was called Anne of Cleves because that is the anglicized version of her name. But her name was actually Anna. She was born September 22nd, 1515 in Dusseldorf. Her father was John III, Duke of Cleves. And her mother was Maria of Julichburg. The two were married at a hunting lodge and Anne spent a lot of time playing there with her siblings growing up. She had three siblings. She had an older sister, Sibylla, who was three years older than her. She had a brother, William, who was one year younger. And then Amelia, who was two years younger. So... It was said that they were descended from Edward I of England and Francis II of Spain. She was also distantly related to Charles V. Her great, great grandmother was Maria of Burgundy, who was a sister of Philip the Good, who was Charles V's great, great great grandfather i think if i did that math correctly i could go through like the whole lineage but literally it doesn't matter anymore than to say that they were distantly related but pretty much like all the white rulers of europe during this time were distantly related in some way shape or form they definitely liked to keep it in the family the family legend was that they were descended from the swan knight who rescued elsa of brabant who was being held in a castle in cleves the legend says that it was the night before her wedding to an absolute tyrant and she was lamenting and thinking about this prophecy that was given to her by a nun that a sleeping knight would come and rescue her in her moment of despair when she saw a knight sleeping on a boat being pulled by swans Simultaneously, the tyrant sounded a horn and called that any knight that wished to fight him on behalf of Elsa could step forward. And the sleeping knight awoke and did just that. And in defending her, he won her hair and hand in marriage. And they would have lived happily ever after, as long as she didn't ask him what his true identity was. And then one day she did just that and he left. There are multiple versions of this story that that differ slightly, but many of them just boil down to that, which is a super fun story. It's sort of like the mythology of the Cleve family, right? So Anne was very close to her mother. One biography that I read quoted her as being never from her elbow, and her mother educated the three girls mostly in what they needed to know to be a lady. This didn't include learning other languages, so she only learned how to read and write in German, most likely only spoke German or spoke very little English. Anne, like Jane Seymour, was a great seamstress and embroiderer. The family was also very Catholic when Anne was being raised, but her sister Sibylla married a man who was very supportive of Martin Luther. Like her husband and his family harbored Martin Luther when he was essentially a fugitive and people were trying to execute him. The same year that her sister got married, negotiations began for her own marriage to Francis, who was the heir to the Duke of Lorraine. The marriage contract was signed on June 5th, 1527, but Francis was only nine years old at the time and Anne was 12 and they were too young to actually consent to it. So there was no official betrothal ceremony either. And a contract like this wasn't valid unless it was consummated, which I mean, at nine and 12 years old, they weren't doing anytime soon. So Anne and Francis never even met. It wasn't legally binding or anything. And, and yeah, we'll just sort of leave it at that for the moment. The idea between an alliance between like Germany slash Cleves and England wasn't new. I read that in 1530, there were negotiations amongst them, which most likely included Henry promising his daughter Mary to Anne's brother William. This was when she was still acknowledged and all the next ambassador from Cleves came to try and push it a little bit further, but nothing came of it. Mary didn't get married until she was queen. And it was actually only a few years before she died. But we'll talk about her in a couple episodes. 
Anne's life in court was very sheltered. The court in Cleves didn't have parties. There wasn't a lot of drinking and debauchery. It was very different than the court in England. And this probably made it really jarring for her when she eventually joined the drastically different court. But all evidence points to that she was content with this kind of life. In February 1539, Anne's father died and her brother William was named the successor and became the Duke of Cleves. And that sort of like brings us back to where we were at the beginning of this story. So August 11th, 1539, Watton has sent a report that Anne is not bound by any covenants made by the old Duke of Cleves and the Duke of Lorraine, and she is free to marry as she pleases. So that former marriage contract in 1527 is no longer valid. Letter also stated that she was sheltered and very close to her mother. She spent a lot of time needleworking. She couldn't read or write French or Latin. She couldn't play an instrument. She didn't drink. She only spoke German. But it did say that she was witty and that he was confident that she would be able to learn English and that she was fairly intelligent. Marillac, the French ambassador, wrote that Henry had taken up embroidery so that they would have that in common and that he wouldn't want a drunkard for a wife anyway. So this was actually like a really positive um, match for him. During this time, that's also when Holbein was there painting her portrait. And he was also painting the portrait of Anne's younger sister, Amelia. On September 4th, 1539, Anne's brother William signed the initial marriage treaty at Dusseldorf. She was there and reportedly thanked everyone for being part of such a great match for her and that she could wish for no better. It wasn't intended for her to ever, like, marry a king. She was probably just expected to, like, marry a lesser noble or to marry, like, a duke and become a duchess. Um, Not to the extent of this. So this was a really, really good match for her. Uh, A couple days later, the Duke of Cleves sent his ambassadors to negotiate the marriage contract further, i.e., like, dowry, income for her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they arrived on September 18th in England, and they finalized the marriage contract on September 24th. Henry actually waived the dowry payment because he knew that William of Duke, the Duke of Cleves, like, would have a hard time paying it, and it was just, like, a formality of it. And then in the contract, it stated that she was to travel to England within two months. In the meantime, Cromwell sent some ladies to her, most likely so that they could start teaching her English, and so that she would have people in England that she was familiar with at this point. So in November, um, on November 26th, Anna leaves Cleves and she sets off for England. So she's on the road for a couple weeks. On December 10th, she arrives close to Calais and lands in England on December 27th. During this time, while she was traveling, she wanted to learn more about her husband. She wanted to do what she could to make him happy. So she actually asked people to like teach her card games that Henry liked. So she would have something in common with him and they could like bond over playing games together. It was adorable. Like I love this. In December, on December 31st, 1539, Anne arrives in Rochester Castle in Kent where she would rest for a few days and then go meet Henry. But Henry wanted to meet her now, damn it. So he rode to Rochester and surprised her and he shouldn't have done that. So if we remember from the letters he wrote to Anne Boleyn in the 1520s, Henry is a romantic. 
He was heavily inspired by these like Arthurian tales of knights and love and courtly love and and all that. And he aspired to be like this. There was a specific story that he loved about this knight who like disguised himself, but his true love could see through it because they were meant to be. And for the absolute fucking life of me, I cannot remember the documentary that I watched that said what story this was. I went through all of them in my watch history. I have no idea what it was. If you know what it is, please tell me because I am going crazy because I know that I watched a specific story because I remember talking about how silly the story was and telling my husband about it and being like, oh yeah, he was inspired by this story and then this is what happened afterwards. But life is not a fairy tale, right? Like life is not an Arthurian legend where we can just sort of like all be knights of the round table and go search for the Holy Grail and then like, you know, marry the love of our lives for love because of true love's kiss and like all that kind of stuff. Life is not a fairy tale. We don't all live happily ever after. I mean, if we've looked at Henry VIII's first three wives, we could definitely say that that we don't all live happily ever after. Um, but specific story, like aside, specific fairy tale aside, Henry should have learned this lesson from Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou. They were arranged to be married. And when she arrived in England, she was ill, but he just could not wait. So he disguised himself as a squire with a letter from the king. He knelt in front of her and she ignored him completely. She left him on his knees. And when he left, she was told who it was. And she was rather vexed at this being the first meeting and that she was kind of like pulled into it. Although there are some historians to believe that she knew exactly who he was. And this was a power move because that's the the kind of woman that she was. (laughs) I mean, Shakespeare does call her the she-wolf of France for a reason, right? On January 1st, 1540, there was a party and the castle was full of energy and Anne was off by herself by a window looking outside, watching some men work with the bulls that were out there. Again, she was used to a simple life. Her court wasn't full of this energy. They didn't dance. They didn't really play music. Anne didn't drink. She didn't speak the language. So this is all probably like very overwhelming for her. So she was just sort of like depressed woman be footage staring out the window <laughs> while it rains. Um, so Issa Shapley wrote that Henry disguised himself in a cloak with a hood so that he wouldn't be recognized. And he walked in and walked up to Anne and embraced and kissed her and showed her a token, which the king had sent for her for a New Year's gift. And she being abashed and not knowing who it was, thanked him and he spoke with her, but she regarded him little, but always looked out the window. When the king saw that she took little notice of his coming, he went into another chamber and took off his cloak and came in again with a coat of purple velvet. So to Anne, this random ass dude just walked up to her. He kisses her. He embraces her and was like, I have a gift from the king. It's my dick in a box. But (laughs) that's not what the gift was. (laughs) Uh, that's not what the gift was, but I would not put it past Henry VIII to honestly cut a hole at the bottom of this box. And she was like, who the fuck are you? What the fuck do you think you're doing? Um, I'm, I'm going to be nice and I'm going to talk to you. But I, I mean, I, for one, have no idea who the fuck you are. And, um, also for two, the last of Henry's wives who flirted with a man in court got her fucking head cut off. So, um, but it, it said like, 
it was fine. They talked. Uh, he walked out, took the disguise off and came back. She bowed before him. They talked and then went to a different room to talk more in private. And it seemed like it was okay, at least according to Eustace Shapley. Although according to some of the men close to Henry, he put on a really good show for the people watching because he wanted to make sure that he was diplomatic and seemed cordial and like a gentleman and all of that. But when he left to go get changed, he was livid and he was embarrassed. And he decided that this woman was not the woman for him. And he did not want to marry her. And and this, this contract needed to be needed to be dissolved immediately. He said, I see nothing in this woman as men report of her. And I marvel that wise men would make such a report as they have done. So in his mind, he had been duped by Cromwell and made to be a fool. And he confronted him and was like, I thought you said she was hot. And Cromwell was like, I, th- I mean, I was told she was. And Henry was like, hell no, she is fat and she is ugly. And I will not stand to marry someone, says the man who is fat and ugly and double the age of his intended bride with leg ulcers that fester and smell constantly. Right. But she is the gross one people remember that she is the ugly wife henry the eighth is not the ugly husband so thomas cromwell like hearing how angry henry was tried to pass the blame off onto the earl of that was a hard word to say thomas cromwell tried to pass the blame off onto the earl of southampton who brought her to england and the earl was like what the fucking shit i just did as i was told uh henry didn't buy it henry blamed Thomas Cromwell 100% and told him to figure out how to get him out of his marriage without starting a war and that he had less than a week to do so. On January 3rd, 1540, Anne arrived in Greenwich Palace and people were like lining up. They were crowding her arrival so much that they had to put up barriers so that people wouldn't fall into the Thames River. An estimated 6,000 people were there to see this new queen. And Henry acted with honor to her face. He seemed proud of her when she gave a little speech in English that she had spent all day practicing. She had like no idea that he was just like waiting with bated breath to hear back from from Cromwell about his marriage contract being dissolved to this uh, ugly woman that he is not ugly. Like if you look at her picture, she's not ugly. She's quite beautiful. So even though the Chronicle Hall... (laughs) (laughs) Even Hall's Chronicle said that she was a fair lady of so good a statue and so womanly a countenance and an especial of so good qualities. So Henry VIII escorted her to her chambers and then like went immediately to his council to try and get out of it again. And apparently when he heard the news that there was no way out of it, he wept. He stated that this marriage was now against his will. And he allegedly said, is there none other remedy? that I must needs, against my will, put my neck in the yoke. So on Tuesday, January 6, 1540, at Greenwich Palace, we have the marriage of Anne and Henry. Henry awoke early. He dressed in a gown of gold and rich black fur and a coat of crimson. And she was two hours late for the ceremony, not for any fault of her own. There was a delay with the Earl of Essex, who was supposed to like walk her down the aisle because she had no family there with her. But I'm sure regardless, Henry was not happy about waiting for this woman that like he didn't even want to marry in the first place. When she finally walked down the aisle, she wore a gold dress embroidered with flowers and pearls. Her hair was loose and she wore a small crown that looked like sprigs of rosemary. For Anne, this was amazing. This was a great match for her. For Henry, he was probably thinking about how to make that whole till death do us part thing. 
happen quickly if he couldn't get this marriage annulled after the fact, you know. The next morning, Thomas Cromwell went up to King Henry VIII and was like, hey, man, how was your night? Eyebrow wiggle. <laughs> and Henry apparently responded, quote, Surely, my lord, I liked her before not well, but now I like her much worse. She is nothing fair and has very evil smells about her. I took her to be no maid by reason of the looseness of her breast and other tokens, which, when I felt them, stake me so hard to the heart that I had neither will nor courage to prove the rest. I can have non-appetite for displeasurable airs. I have left her as good a maid as I have found her. So apparently, like, that night, they went to bed. She laid there, like, waiting to consummate her relationship with the aforementioned state of King Henry VIII. And then this fat, smelly man saw her belly and her breasts and was repulsed. And he just, like, couldn't go through with it. That He, like, felt her up. He apparently tried. Um... But then he decided that, like, no one could have a belly and boobs and, like, still be a virgin. He actually later on said that, like, she, because she had a belly and boobs, that this proved that she had, like, already had a child. Um, and, and like, he just wasn't going to engage in that at all. But she did not know that he felt this way. She thought that he was happy. He sent her gifts. Um he was like planning tournaments in her honor and joustings in her honor for their happy marriage and their happy match. And she thought everything was fine. In the next few nights, Henry stated that they didn't consummate their marriage then either. Henry went to his doctors and all. Remember, there were rumors that he was having impotency issues like way back when Anne Boleyn was on trial. But he was telling his doctors that like, these issues were not his own because he had had two wet dreams. So everything was working just fine downstairs. It was because his wife was disgusting. Uh, Even though, again, no one described her this way until Henry was rejected. I mean, there was like one friend of Henry who basically said that she wasn't his type. Not that she wasn't pretty. She just wasn't as extravagantly beautiful as the women that he usually went for. Henry was the one who was calling her ugly. Everyone else seemed to think that she was relatively beautiful. On January 11th, when the joust was held in her honor, she apparently wore an English style gown and people remarked about how pretty she looked and how that gown suited her way better than the thicker Germans ones that she was wearing. And for the next few months, they continued to share a bed, but apparently never consummated anything. And poor Anne, it's alleged she might not have even been totally aware about what consummating a marriage actually entailed. So... At one point, Anne's ladies-in-waiting asked her if there was any chance that she could be pregnant, and she, like, vehemently insisted that she wasn't. And her ladies kind of, like, teased her a little bit about being a virgin still. And she apparently responded, How can I be a maid and sleep every night with the king? When he comes to bed, he kisses me and taketh me by the hand and biddeth me good night, sweetheart. And in the morning kisses me and biddeth me farewell, darling. Is that not enough? But I don't know, like, it could be that she was very naive. It could be that she was very young and she didn't know anything. She was very sheltered. Maybe her mother didn't tell her about these things. Maybe her friends and her sister didn't tell her about these things. But, like, I don't know if I totally believe that that conversation actually happened. First off, she barely spoke English at this point, remember? But, like, even if we want to disregard that, like, if she wasn't saying all this in German and someone translated it for her. Um, 
like, I know she was sheltered, but, like, that sheltered? And, like, also, like, to me, I'm a very sarcastic person, and this just sounds really sarcastic and joking. And, like, she was, like, poking fun at the king a little bit. And if she was from another country, like, maybe people didn't understand her humor. I don't know. Like, poor Anne. Either way, right? (laughs) She, She did her duties as a wife outside of the bedroom antics. She also tried to facilitate good relationship between Henry's daughters. Um, Apparently, Elizabeth wrote her a letter that was saying that she would be loyal to her and wish to see her in person, but that Henry had made it so that she couldn't leave her home. So Anne sort of like broached the subject with him. He did not agree. She also spoke to him about Mary. Elizabeth and Mary were both not invited to their wedding and didn't seem to have any part in his life at that point. And she was upset about this. And like both of them also were not acknowledged. Remember, like his only child that was acknowledged at this point was his child Edward with Jane Seymour. And there were like a couple letters around this time that Henry was complaining about Anne. And he was complaining about how she argued with him about these matters, which he hated. Like she had the audacity to have boobs and a belly and speak her mind. Like the, the shame, like the audacity, the, the lion, the witch and the audacity of this bitch. Right. But again, to her face and keeping appearances up with her brother and political advisors, everything was going well. To her face, there was no date set for her coronation, but she was led to believe that it would actually happen, even though it's very clear now that there was no intention for that to happen. On April 12th, 1540, Parliament met and on their agenda was the discussion about the dissolution of this marriage to Anne. Cromwell was still looking into how to dissolve this. A few days later, Henry made Cromwell the Earl of Essex and Lord Great Chamberlain, most likely to almost like bribe him with these positions to find a solution. That's that's like a big theory that a lot of people think. Now, in the meantime, Anne was surrounded by these pretty young ladies in waiting, like Catherine Howard, who apparently in January had caught the king's eye. And by this time in April, he was giving Catherine Howard beautiful lands and gifts and all of these other things and giving her a lot of attention. Um, Catherine Howard, we're going to talk about more next time. But um, she was born in 1524, which meant that at this point she was 16 and Henry was about to turn 49. <laughs> just so gross like i can't i i can't i can't anyway on may 1st there was a jousting competition and that was the last time that henry and anne would be seen together but anne did not know this she apparently even went and sent someone to ask when her coronation would be and uh, behind the scenes cromwell is still trying to get henry out of this marriage and it's starting to get to the point where everyone is like dude you need to figure this out or the king is going to retaliate and it will not be good for you. Spoilers. It was not good for him. So um, Henry during this time also started sending Anne of Cleves, like all of her ladies in waiting that came with her from Germany. He began sending them back. He wrote a letter to Anne's mother that said that the ladies did well, but the queen's circle is getting smaller and she didn't need as many servants. And he was trying to like, have more English servants or whatever around her, which was a lie, of course. 
So on June 20th, 1540, there is record of Anne of Cleves complaining to her ambassador about his interest in Catherine Howard and how twice now Henry has fallen for a lady in waiting to the queen and um, pushed his wives aside for them. And the last time this happened, the wife was executed, right? Richard Hills wrote that courtiers first observed that he was much taken with another young lady, very small of stature who he now has and whom he was seen crossing the Thames to visit often in the daytime and sometimes at night. But it was looked upon as a sign of adultery, not divorce, which made Anne happy. Um, This also might have been because Catherine apparently left court. But I'm sorry. Again, she's described as very small of stature. She's described like a child because she's a child. She's a child. Like, you know what? If you are of consenting age, I'm not going to knock whatever age you are. And I'm not going to knock if if you're in your 20s and you want to date someone in their 50s, you go for it. Like, that's fine. As long as you're happy, I don't care. But she is 16. She is a child. Like, Henry VIII is a pedophile. And it's disgusting. And I know that times are different. And I know that I shouldn't be thinking in terms like this. But she is a child. And it's gross. So, like, after this complaint about Catherine Howard and people sort of like hinting that he was going to visit her at night, which is, I've already said my opinion on it. I I won't say it again. Um, On June 24th, Anne was sent away from court. She was sent to Richmond Palace. And the reason why she was sent, she was told, was because a plague had broken out and um, they were sending her there for her safety to avoid the plague. But there was not a plague in England at this time. And then Henry was like, don't worry, sweetheart, I will join you. Which like, Henry, when it came to sickness, because he was so about medicine, he was very cautious when it came to sickness. So like, if there was a pandemic, or if there was like an illness sleeping through parts of England, he would leave to to avoid this because he didn't want to die from illness. Because that was like, one of the redeeming factors for him I guess so he promised that because there was a plague that he was going to join her but because there wasn't a plague he did not join her on July 6th Anne was rudely awakened to a letter that demanded her consent into the investigation into the validity of their marriage so Henry let her know that he was concerned about all this former contracts that she had signed with the Duke of Lorraine and that he was planning to annul their marriage. And she was like, um, no, that's not how any of this works. I will not. Um, but then in the most absurd and bizarre turn of events, he offered her that she would no longer be his wife but he would adopt her as his sister. And in having this position, she would rule over all of court, except for any future queen and their children, and offered her money and houses and and all of that. And this sucked. But like, it was better than what happened to Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, right? So the next day on July 7th, clergy agreed to annul the marriage. 
on the grounds of her former contract to the Duke of Lorraine, who, like, the contract was dissolved, but they could, like, conveniently couldn't find the paperwork of the dissolution. So um, they were saying that, like, she was still, like, legally engaged to the Duke of Lorraine. Uh, Also on the grounds that Henry hadn't consented to the marriage and on the grounds that the marriage had never been consummated. Uh, Henry... (laughs) Henry also said that he had had secret knowledge that he would reveal if this was not enough. Most likely it was his like idea and accusation that she wasn't a virgin because she had boobs and a belly. Um, But he didn't have to use this because those three grounds that I mentioned were enough for that. And they sent this off to Anne for her approval to accept it. Many said that when she heard the news, she fainted. In the days leading up to this, she cried constantly, where people reported that it broke their heart to witness it. But probably in her mind, she was thinking of uh, the the last wife that was named Anne that he was trying to divorce. And she was very much aware that the Tower of London was not that far from Richmond Castle where she was. So on July 11th, 1540, she received all of this information and she wrote a letter to Henry VIII. And I will read that letter now. It's kind of a little bit long, but it's it's all pretty good. So it read, Pleaseth your most excellent majesty to understand that, whereas at sundry times heretofore, I have been informed and perceived by certain lords and others, your grace's counsel, of the doubts and questions which have been moved and found in our marriage, and how hath petitioned thereupon, been made to your highness by your nobles and commons that the same might be examined and determined by the holy clergy of this realm to testify to your highness by my writing that which I have been before promised by my word and will. That is to say that the matter should be examined and determined by the said clergy. It may please your majesty to know that though this case must needs be most hard and sorrowful unto me for the great love which I bear to your most noble person, Yet having more regard to God and his truth than any worldly affection as it beseemed me at the beginning to submit me to such examination and determination of the said clergy, whom I have and do accept for judges competent in that behalf. So now being ascertained how the same clergy hath therein given their judgment and sentence, I acknowledge myself hereby to accept and approve the same wholly and entirely putting myself for my state and condition to your highness's goodness and pleasure. Most humbly beseeching your majesty that though it might be determined that the pretended matrimony between us is void and none effect, whereby I neither can nor will repute myself for your grace's wife, considering this sentence and your majesty's clean and pure living with me. Yet it will please you to take me for one of your humble servants, and so determine of me as I may sometimes have the fruition of your most noble presence, which I shall esteem for a great benefit." So my lords and others of your majesty's council, now being with me, have put me in comfort thereof, and that your highness will take me for your sister, which, for the most, I humbly thank you accordingly. Signed, your majesty's most humble sister and servant, Anne, daughter of Cleves. And she sent this letter back to Henry with her wedding ring, and asked him to break it into pieces and destroy it, because it held no value. So, I mean, Henry had probably, like, expected more of a fight. But honestly, I mean, her not fighting spared her from from a, a fate of, you know, these other wives that he had before. Henry wrote back addressing her as his sister, saying that she would be given £4,000 a year in estate money, plus a £500 a year stipend, multiple houses, jewels, furniture, and the lease of Hever Castle, which was Anne Boleyn's fucking home. And she lived there. 
what I don't know why that bothers me so much, but like that bothers me so much. Henry also made her right to her brother, William Duke of Cleves. She didn't want to. She asked if Henry could do it instead, but he thought like it would be better to hear it from her. So she finally did. She was very embarrassed and she didn't want her brother to be angry with her. And he wasn't. He didn't blame her and he offered for her to come back to Cleves. But the settlement was contingent on her residence in England and she would have had better opportunities staying in England. The marriage dissolution contract said that both Henry and Anne were free to marry whomever they wanted to. But that couldn't really be the case for her. Technically, if her previous marriage contract was enough to annul her marriage to Henry, then it would be enough to annul any marriage that she would have had going forward. So she never married. She never had any children um, or, or anything like that. But like, it wasn't all bad for her. Anne and Catherine Howard didn't seem to really hate each other. In 1541 on New Year's, she was invited to the castle. She gave the king a few horses. And when he retired, she spent the night like dancing and talking with Catherine Howard. The next day, the king gifted Catherine Howard a ring and a couple dogs and Catherine gave them to Anne. This meeting was like rather cordial and pleasant and seemingly happy between the two with them like dancing and talking and all of that. And it showed that she accepted her role as the king's sister and that, you know, she like wouldn't really dispute it. I think a lot of people were really nervous that, you know, the former queen and the current queen would have issues with each other, but they did it. I mean, she, she was really kind and, and um, she was seemingly totally fine with the situation. She was one of the richest women in England She didn't have to be married to Henry anymore, which is probably like a fucking blessing for her. And considering how the first wife ended up destitute and humiliated and never allowed to see her family again and at the whims of the king and the second wife was executed and the third wife died. She was the luckiest of the wives so far. I mean, arguably, she was the luckiest of all of Henry's wives. Uh, Anne died on July 6th, 1557, from unknown reasons, but she outlived Henry. She outlived all of Henry's wives, and it was said that she was happy. So maybe she is the one wife of Henry that did live happily ever after as not his wife. And Henry was happy as well. Um, I mean, mostly happy. (laughs) He was mostly happy. He wasn't happy with Thomas Cromwell, who in his eyes had failed him. And we all know what happens when Henry is not happy with someone. Now, some people say that Henry was not happy with Thomas Cromwell because of all of the situation with Anne of Cleves. Um, Others say that like he was fine with the situation. He knew that Thomas Cromwell was doing his best. And it was other advisors who couldn't stand Cromwell who began like whispering to Henry that he was up to no good. Um, And then there were even some people who speculated that it was because Cromwell was like trying to push the Lutheran beliefs on Henry like really, really hard. And then like Henry just like finally had enough and snapped. On June 10th, so like in the midst of everything happening with parliament meeting and parliament making the decisions on whether they're going to dissolve the marriage of Anne and Henry or not and like what grounds they have to do that on June 10th of 1540 Thomas Cromwell walked into parliament and as he was walking in the wind blew his hat off which for some reason seemed just like really foreshadowing to me 
Um, and so, like, he walked into Parliament. And because of his high status, it was customary for everyone there to take off their hats when he entered. And nobody took off their hats for him. And then at dinner that night, nobody spoke to him. Like, everyone ignored his existence. And then after dinner, he went to a meeting with all of Henry's counselors, and none of them stood up as he walked in, as was customary. And when he went to sit down, he was told not to, because traitors do not sit amongst gentlemen. And the captain of the guard then came in, arrested him, and dragged him off to the Tower of London. Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, didn't believe that Thomas Cromwell was guilty of like whatever he was accused with, um, didn't believe that he was a traitor. He was one of the few people that are documented that tried to stand up for Thomas Cromwell. He wrote a letter to Henry VIII that said, heard yesterday in the King's Council that Cromwell is a traitor, expresses his amazement and grief that he should be a traitor who was so advanced by the King and cared for no man's displeasure to serve him and was so vigilant to detect treason that King John, Henry II, Richard II, had they had such a counselor, would never have been so overthrown as they were. I loved him as a friend, and the more for the love he seemed to bear the king, and now, although glad that his treason is discovered, I'm very sorrowful. For whom shall the king trust hereafter? Praise that God sends to the king a counselor that he can trust, and who for all of his qualities can serve like him. On June 2nd, two days after his arrest, Thomas Cromwell wrote a letter to Henry VIII. It read, Prostrate at your majesty's feet. I have heard your pleasure by your controller, vis, that I should write such things as I thought meet concerning my most miserable state. And where I have been accused of treason, I never in all my life thought to displease your majesty, much less to do or say that thing which of itself is so high an abominable offense. Your grace knows my accusers. God forgive them. If it were in my power to make you live forever, God knows I would, or to make you so rich that you shall enrich all men or so powerful that all the world shall obey you. For your majesty has been most bountiful to me and more like a father than a master. I ask you mercy where I have offended. What master chancellor has been to me? God, and he knows best. What I have been to him, your majesty knows. If I had obeyed your often most gracious counsels, it would not have been with me as now it is. But I have committed my soul to God, my body and goods to your pleasure. As for the commonwealth, I have done my best, and no one can justly accuse me of having done wrong willfully. If I heard of any combination or offenders against the laws, I have, for the most part, though not as I should have done, revealed and caused them to be punished. But I have meddled in so many matters, I cannot answer them all. The controller showed me that you complained that within these 14 days, I had revealed a matter of great secrecy. I remember the matter, but I never revealed it. After your grace had spoken to me in your chamber of the things that you misliked in the queen, I told you that she often desired to speak with me, but I durst not. And you thought I might do good by going to her and telling her my mind. Lacking the opportunity, I spoke with her Lord Chamberlain, for which I ask your mercy, to induce her to behave pleasantly towards you. I repeated the suggestion when the Lord Chamberlain and others of her council came to me at Westminster for license for the departure of the strange maidens. This is before your grace committed the secret matter to me, which I have never disclosed to any but my Lord Admirable by your commandment on Sunday last, whom I found equally willing to seek a remedy for your comfort, saying that he would spend the best blood in his belly for that object. 
was also accused at his examination of retaining contrary to the laws, denies that he ever retained any except his household servant, but it was against his will, was so besought by persons who said that they were his friends, that he received their children and friends, not as retainers, for their fathers and parents did find them. But if he have offended, desires pardon, acknowledges himself a miserable sinner towards God and the king, but never willfully, desires prosperity for the king and prince." written with the quaking hand and most sorrowful heart of your most sorrowful subject and most humble servant and prisoner, this Saturday I Tower of London. He wrote more letters as well, often ending them, like written at the Tower of London this Wednesday, the last of June, with the heavy heart and trembling hand of your highness's most heavy and most miserable prisoner and poor slave, Thomas Cromwell, with a postscript that read, My most gracious prince, I cry mercy. Mercy mercy. On June 29th, an act of attainder was passed that declared Cromwell was guilty of treason, heresy, taking bribes, and appropriating money without need of trial. He was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. On July 28th, 1540, Thomas Cromwell was awoken and taken to Tower Hill. He climbed the scaffold and stated that he had come to die. He had some like gallows humor saying that he died a Catholic, which was like very much not the case. He denied all the charges that were made against him. It's reported that he said, quote, many have slandered me and reported that I have been a bearer of such as I have maintained evil opinions, which is untrue. But I confess that like as God by his Holy Spirit doth instruct us in the truth. So the devil is ready to seduce us and I have been seduced. He then begged Jesus for mercy and said, I see and acknowledge that there is in myself no hope of salvation, but all my confidence, hope and trust is in thy most merciful goodness. I have no merits or good works, which I may allege before thee. And Claire Ridgway says that this is him admitting that he is a Lutheran. So Thomas Cromwell had begged Henry for mercy and Henry was merciful Um, Thomas Cromwell was now sentenced to be beheaded instead of being hanged, drawn and quartered. Being hanged, drawn and quartered was like a very, very brutal death, very painful. And beheading was like not supposed to be as painful. It was not supposed to be as drawn out. Um, But unfortunately for Thomas Cromwell, it was not a quick and painless death for him. It is reported that he kneeled at the block and then, quote, so patiently suffered the stroke of the axe by a ragged and butcherly miser, which very ungodly performed the office. Reports said that the executioner missed on the first blow. That's not to say he didn't not hit him. That's to say he didn't hit him properly. Uh, He didn't deliver that killing blow on the first try and he had to strike three times to complete the job and regardless of your personal opinions about someone and like whether you want to paint them as a villain or not in your historical retelling this is fucking horrifying and henry also on this day married Catherine howard and I, I honestly think that, like, executing people close to him just, like, really did something for him. Because that's the only explanation that I can think of. 
we'll talk uh, a little bit more next time about Catherine Howard, his next wife, and like some of the ensuing things that happened with her and some of like the political stuff that happened surrounding her. But that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard and you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing or leaving a review or joining my Patreon. Like I said, next week, we will be talking about Catherine Howard. Following that, we will be talking about Catherine Parr, who is the sixth wife of Henry VIII. And then we will go into some of King Henry VIII's children. And like I said before, finish all of this with a nice little Tudor murder mystery. Remember, friends, history may be watching you. So don't fuck it up. Also, like, I didn't mention it, but I think it's very funny that like, well, not funny, but I think it's very interesting that um, Anne Boleyn, one of the major things that she was executed for was kissing her brother on the mouth, making that incest um, and therefore like, you know, a, a crime and all of that. But if Henry made... And of Cleves, his sister, does that mean that she was his sister when he was like feeling her up and kissing her in bed and calling her darling and sweetheart? Like, I mean, <laughs> uh, bye. <laughs>